I would say in hearing the praises and the prayer requests, I'm very encouraged that uh, this morning's scripture is focused on war, being commanded to war, engaging in war. And to hear many of you talking about seeing the landscape before you as opportunity to share the gospel, as opportunity to make Christ known with how you reach out and serve, but specifically asking for boldness to make Christ known. And uh, this is what we're talking about this morning, being willing to stand up in the culture of where you are, in whatever situation you are, and, and put your feet down and say, this is the truth, no matter the cost. This is what it's about. And it's not just a preference that we're talking about this morning. This is life and death for eternity. And it's far deeper than we can even imagine. I could never find the words. I, before I came up here, I was in, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, Brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with wise and persuasive words of human wisdom. And there's nothing I could say that would somehow help us to grip the, gra- the true gravity of what it means when some of our dear family members, some of our neighbors, a spouse or a child dies and goes to hell. Or when one is snatched out of that and brought into eternal life through Jesus Christ. It is, it is far greater than any war victory that we've ever read of in history. And it is eternal. Dave Harvey writes, July 21st, 1861, the first major battle of the Civil War started before dawn. The roar of artillery seemed to awaken everyone in Virginia as the Union and Confederate armies clashed among the farms by a stream called Bull Run. But a strange thing happened as the battle intensified. Hundreds of Washingtonians Senators, representatives, government workers, and their families, all dressed in leisure apparel and carrying picnic baskets, raced to the hill near Manassas to watch the battle unfold. Armed with opera glasses to survey the fighting, they chatted amicably as men were slaughtered on the fields below. One northern sympathizer commented, That is splendid. Oh my, is not that first rate. I guess we will be in Richmond this time tomorrow. Spirits were high. Toasts were raised. All in all, they thought it a superb way to spend a summer afternoon. Suddenly, a rebel counterattack, led by hard-charging cavalry, swept over the Union flank, putting the army to flight. Even to untrained eyes, the implications were obvious. The serene picnic ground was about to become a battle zone. Mass confusion erupted as the spectators fled, just moments before the Confederate wave washed over the hill. The entertainment was over. The battle was upon them. The picnickers discovered something about war that day. You can't be close to and safe from it at the same time. When war enters the scene, everything it touches becomes a battlefield. Paul writes to Timothy in verse 18, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. It is a command to wage war. And we see here an important role of authority and direction in spiritual warfare. Paul received a commandment from God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope, which he mentions in the opening line of this letter. That change is now being passed down the chain of command to his spiritual son, Timothy. When God commands, there is no higher authority. There's no authority to appeal to, nor is there a place to run or hide, nor is there room for discussion or hesitancy. Just ask Jonah. It doesn't work that way. As we have already seen in chapter 1, this letter that we have opened is a wartime letter sent to a frontline soldier with orders to stay on the battlefront. Do not give ground, Timothy. The enemy has already, as we have read, infiltrated behind the walls of defense into the very leadership of the Ephesian church. Timothy is called to a mighty task that will require his all. 
As Phil pointed out last Sunday in chapter 2, prayer will be his first and most formidable weapon. In these final three verses of chapter 1, Paul will motivate, he will give guidance, he will warn, he will give tragic examples of defectors in the warfare, and he will mention extreme response necessary for any hope of rescue. Warfare surrounded Timothy on the battlefield of the church in Ephesus. Most of us would assent to the fact that real spiritual war surrounds us in these days as well. Wouldn't you? You would agree that we're in the midst of spiritual war. Do we know where that war is? Do we know what it is? Could the streets of the city be filled with spiritual warfare? And not just the abortion clinics or the gay bars, or the blatantly satanic hangouts, but the very homes we live in. The church meetings here at New Hope Bible Church. The places where many work, the commercial and public institutions that are woven into the fabric of our lives daily. Wrote one author, the Christian life is also a warfare. As believers enter a lifelong fight, a lifelong fight against the evil world system, Satan, and their own sinful human flesh. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. In the lives of God's people, in the lives of God's people, there is no demilitarized zone. A few years back, we were in South Korea for about an eight, nine hour layover, I think it was, and, and we got on a, in a taxi cab that morning, and we had thought about going to the demilitarized zone in Korea. We did not end up going there. And we didn't have enough time. But there is a section there where warfare does not take place. It's a separation from North and South Korea. In the lives that we live in though, there is no demilitarized zone. There is no neutral place. We are in a warfare. Are we consciously aware of a very real war that has eternal consequences? Philip Ryken gives a more sober and convicting conclusion of that battle story I read in the introduction. He adds, The scene of battle was one of unimagined chaos and terror. The commanders were unaccustomed to warfare on such a grand scale. The armies did not so much engage as collide. The fighting was fierce until Stonewall Jackson led the Confederate soldiers on a bayonet charge. The Union was routed with 3,000 soldiers left dead or bleeding on the battlefield. The Washington socialites ran for their lives. Their army defeated because it was not ready to fight. Defeated because it was not ready to fight. Are we aware of the urgency of this battle that rages around us and with which we must engage? Are we ready to fight? Here's how Paul speaks to his spiritual son, calling him to war in verse 18. Let's pray as we look at this. Heavenly Father, we, we know so little about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, the principalities and powers of this dark world, even our own flesh as we war against it, as we war against this world and it's, it's committed opposition to the glory of God and His authority. Lord, we need You to open Your Word to us. I need You, Father, to, to speak through me. We ask that You would lead us near to You. And You would make us, Lord. You would make us soldiers ready to fight. You would prepare us. You would equip us. You would give us a lion's heart for the King. That we would be willing to go anywhere at any time for You. Please lead us as you led Timothy through your Apostle Paul. Amen.
This charge I commit to your son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now I understand that we're talking about Paul the Apostle, and he's speaking to Timothy, his spiritual son. There are differences between you and I and them. And there are differences of roles in this battle. But what Paul is calling us to this morning, and what we can see here are things that we all must understand. We are in a time now where everything is revealing itself. Whereas you may have thought Walmart was in neutrality at one point, now it's paying for abortions uh, to be carried out by people that want to take the child in their womb and have it killed in another state. And I, we could go down the list of uh, corporate entities like that. The, the school system, when some of us were growing up, well, it seemed to have somewhat of a neutrality. It did not. We didn't realize that as we should have. But it, it, the covers have pulled back completely in what is being taught. So we are in a war. And we must equip ourselves. We must be prepared. We must face it. We can't be like somebody pulling out the picnic basket at the beaches of Normandy while the war was crushing in on them and and having a good time with the frisbee and a few sandwiches. We must be engaged. We have been called to be soldiers of our king. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, the Holy Spirit's gifting of which he has gifted all of you who know him, who have surrendered to him and have allegiance to Christ, has given you gifts The Holy Spirit's gifting and the affirmation of spiritual leaders in the church are invaluable in spiritual warfare. That's what Paul is saying here in this first verse. Timothy was stationed by Paul in Ephesus. He put him there. He told him to stay and to battle against the growing influence of false leaders in that very church. These enemies were elders. They were leaders in authority who were teaching What Paul labeled, if we remember back, another doctrine. Their heresy blasphemed the gospel of Christ. As Paul explained in chapter 1, in verses 4 through 7, he writes there, that they teach no other doctrine, telling them not to do that, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor the things which they affirm. Then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul gets a little more specific. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. These are the doctrines of those men that have come up into the leadership within that Ephesian church. Here Paul gives a charge. And I love the language here. This is very, very clearly military language. The charge Paul gives is the word arangalia, and it means a mandate, a command. It is a military order that is to be obeyed immediately and without compromise. This charge that Paul gives is not up for debate with Timothy. Then Paul char- this, Paul, this charge that Paul gives involves a commission to Timothy. He is entrusting him. He is committing something to him. Now when you entrust something to someone, you place something of value into another person's hands. Something you value are put into their hands. When you deposit your money in a bank, you expect it to be there. You expect it to be protected. You entrust the bank with it. It is now their responsibility. Paul is passing this to Timothy. Such actions involve a high level of trust and confidence. And understand, this was not an overnight spiritual transaction from Paul to Timothy. Through years, literally years of teaching, living, suffering, preaching, correcting, rebuking, and training, Paul passes on to Timothy 
his greatest riches. This priceless treasure was the gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes in 1 Timothy 6, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely, falsely called knowledge. Timothy, don't let anything distract you from the guarding and proclaiming of this gospel. Then again, in 2 Timothy 1, Paul says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you heard from me in faith and in love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, which was entrusted to you, Timothy, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. I ask you, why was this responsibility such a serious matter? Why would Paul resort to demanding military terms as he expresses this to Timothy? Why would that be? Why is this so urgent? Why is it so sober? Because the gospel entrusted to Timothy contains the power of life and death. Eternity for the souls of men and women are at stake. As I tried to explain in my introduction, nothing even begins to compare with such significance. The battle of Bull Run pales with the battle of men and women going to hell for eternity or being brought into the kingdom of God as adopted sons and daughters. Oh, if we could grab that, if we could understand that, where would we spend our time? This is a trust. It's given to many of us here this morning as well. The gospel has been given to you. It has saved you from hell. The gospel has made many of you sons and daughters of God to live with Him forever. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 14. Paul is gripped here. He says... For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And He has committed, He has entrusted to you, to us, the message or the word of reconciliation. What does that mean? Paul says. Now then, we, you, me, are ambassadors for Christ. Listen to this. As though God, the creator of the universe, who spoke everything into existence, somehow compacted himself and spoke through these measly lips and is telling the world, be reconciled to God. You must be reconciled to God. The one who could speak the universe into existence has chosen to speak through us. We are his ambassadors. That is what we are called to. That is what Paul is telling Timothy. Get to the battlefront. Here Paul reminds Timothy, and this is an interesting portion of this first verse, that there are also specific prophecies made about Timothy that affirm this charge and commission. These prophecies include recommendations of Timothy spoken by the brethren in the cities of Lystra, and Iconium. This occurred on Paul's second missionary journey about 51 AD as he traveled through Lystra. Acts 16 gives us detail. Acts 16 verses 1 through 3. Then Paul came to Derbe in Lystra and behold a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. But his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, 
And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. So there was word in Lystra and Iconium from the brethren there that this man Timothy is stalwart. He's a strong, faithful man. And Paul looked at him and brought him in on his second missionary journeys. But the second thing here that this probably included, these prophecies, were testimonies given at Timothy's ordination. If we go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul tells Timothy, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, given by the Holy Spirit, which all of you who know Christ as Savior have, not the same gift, but you have been gifted. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on in the hands of the eldership. In some way, and we don't know exactly how this occurred, but there was prayer as Timothy was ordained into ministry. And the Spirit of God worked at that time, giving Timothy gifts of preaching and teaching, of leading. And Paul is calling him, Timothy, remember these things. In light of the prophecies spoken about Paul, if we go to Acts 9, 22 and 26, Hendrickson suggests this. These previous prophetic utterances regarding Timothy had probably been of the following nature. They singled out Timothy for special service in God's kingdom, summarized his duties, predicted his suffering, and strengthened him with the promise of divine help in his trials. In other words, the leaders of the church affirmed and confirmed Timothy in ministry. This is important. Another seasoned veteran of contemporary spiritual war testified saying, the church by observing a man's life and service can confirm whether he gives evidence of being called by God to the ministry. That confirmation by the church should keep us going when the battle is fierce. Such was the case for Timothy. Some of you will be sent out into the field. Some of you are on the verge of being done done that very soon in lands overseas. We as a body of Christ want to confirm and affirm that. So when you are in the battlefield, as Timothy was in the battlefield, you know that we are behind you, that we affirm God's gifting to you, and that we are praying for you with all our hearts. We are behind you. You have been gifted by God. If that was not the case, we wouldn't have supported that. We wouldn't have been behind that. But, but I am excited about what lies ahead and that many more will be called and sent out. That's part of the church's work. And, and Paul is reminding Timothy, remember, remember those days when men gathered, the church gathered, and prayed for you and sent you out. You're out there on the battlefield, but you're not alone. You have many who stand behind you, who believe in you, who pray for you. And the Holy Spirit has gifted you. Then it says these prophecies would guide Timothy in war. These prophecies will guide him. It says in verse 18, the latter part there, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The good warfare. To wage war or fight comes from a Greek verb, which is where we get the English word strategy. Paul orders Timothy to fight like a soldier in battle. What an order. What an order this is. What, are we able to receive such instruction and obey ourselves? The scriptures say this. Some of us will, will declare that and exhort that from the, from the pulpit here. Are you ready to take up your place on the battlefield? Be faithful. Commanded by God. Exhorted by the leaders of the church. Are we able to receive that instruction? There's a line from the hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? It states... Yea, I must fight if I should win. Increase my courage, Lord. No question. No hesitation. No request for an easier assignment. But instead, Lord, give me courage to fight the fight. And it is to be a good fight. A noble fight. Not a meaningless fight that pulls the soldiers of Christ away from the battlefield of the gospel. I read about a pastor here who was giving a testimony of how something happened and they, the hospitality committee put a coffee table in the uh, entering area, the foyer, and the deacons didn't think it should be there. And, and before they knew it, they had an all-out battle going. It took them four weeks of many meetings to calm each other down and decide whether the coffee table should be there. And he wrote in his notes, for four weeks I wasn't on the field. 
I was busy trying to get these people to, to forgive these people and these people communicate with that. And I'm thankful, brothers and sisters, we have not had those kind of things. We've had differences on some issues, but by and large, people have put that aside because we know what is the important essential. The men and women need to be discipled to understand the Word of God, and men and women need to have the gospel shared with them. And may we not be waylaid by those things that are not essential. They may be things where we have to sit down and pray and work them out. But don't let it take us off the battlefield. There is too much at stake here. So fight the good fight, a noble fight. It is not a meaningless fight, nor is it an acrimonious argument over someone's pet traditions or interpretations or preference. Engage in warfare over the essential matters of the gospel. The warfare fight, that latter word at this sentence there, is the word stratia. And it is best translated as a campaign or military service. And what I want you to see here is that it means a long-term commitment to war. It's a war for right biblical teaching that will not be won in a day or a week or a conference. It means a long-term commitment. This warfare will not be just a brief skirmish or a single battle. Lord, make us faithful soldiers for the entire duration of the war until He calls us home or until He returns. May we be ready and faithful in the battle. Now, what could that good fight be? What is it for you? What is it for me? What is it for the historical uh, church as we've looked at it in the past? Well, let me look at this here as we begin. Riken again points out, this good fight began in the Old Testament. By the time Moses came down from the mountain, the children of Israel were already worshiping the golden calf in Exodus 32. In Joshua 24, Joshua had to confront the people with the choice between serving God and serving the gods. Elijah was outnumbered by the prophets of Baal, 450 to 1 in 1 Kings 18. Ezekiel had to oppose the prophets who see false visions and who give live, lying divinations in Ezekiel 13. Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus. Jesus' spiritual battles were not only directly with Satan in the wilderness, but they were over and over again with the false and hell-bound legalism of the Pharisees. They took place in the synagogues. They took place in the temple itself. False teaching led men away from Christ and the gospel. And this was the target of New Testament authors such as Peter, Paul, James. Jude even writes in his brief letter, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. We must contend for that. Church history, we move a little further down. Church history has been a continuous battleground for truth. A.D. 325, the Council of Nicaea. The defense of the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ. A.D. 431, the Council of Ephesus. The sovereignty of God's grace against man-centered Pelagian. The Council of Chalcedon. A.D. 451, the Godhead and the true humanity of Jesus Christ. Battles raged. Now, again, Riken points this out. In the Middle Ages... The way of salvation came under attack. Eventually, because of doctrinal error, it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to reform the church. Scripture had to be defended as the alone standard for faith and practice. Sola Scriptura. Christ had to be defended as the alone mediator between God and man. Solus Christus. Faith had to be defended as the alone instrument of justification, sola fide. Grace had to be defended as the alone power of God for salvation, sola gratia. And all these doctrines had to be defended in order to promote the greater glory of God, who alone is worthy of praise, solu, soli deo gloria. 
The problem is, as Riken points out, it's not enough to say, why don't we all just believe in Jesus? As soon as one says that, one needs to explain who Jesus is, what he has done, what difference it makes, and how he is received. And if you don't believe that, then you haven't really tried to share the gospel very often. Because you will find the vast majority of people believe in Jesus. From, from most of the religions that you will approach. But they do not know this Jesus. I argued with a few men on campus from, the, from a Muslim background about who Jesus is. And they kept saying, we love Jesus, we honor Jesus. And I said, you do not know Jesus. You do not understand who he is. If you would see who he is, you would see that what you're doing is paltry. It's a denial of his own claims to be the son of God. And then we go on. The good fight rages on into today. The battle continues for the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. The battle for salvation through Christ alone. The battle for salvation through faith alone. The sanctity of preborn children. The biblical definition of marriage between a man and woman. That is the only marriage there is. God's declaration and this is, this is so tragic in these days, that He created human beings, male and female. Issues that 50 years ago they would never have imagined in some cases. These are the battlegrounds. But the battlegrounds are also personal. And I must also quote Paul here. In 2 Timothy 2, 4, he says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Let that soak in. Let that pierce. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Who is it? Who enlisted you as a soldier? Christ Jesus did. Oh, do you desire to please him? This warfare is all absorbing. It includes your faithful service as a husband or a wife, a father or a mother. But it does not include the wasteful hours that absorb much of our time on social media, fantasy sports, entertainment of all kinds, a myriad of other distractions that keep many a man on the sidelines of the real contest, the contest for the glory of God and the souls of men. Many of us never leave the barracks of the training camp to enter the open warfare of evangelism and defense of the gospel. Now I realize this can, this can step on toes. And what I want you to understand is I'm not saying none of this can ever be done. What I'm asking you is what the scriptures say. Examine your life to see if you be in the faith or where you are in your relationship with God. Take an honest look at the number of hours that you spend on one of these devices and look at your day. That thing can absorb an hour to two hours of your time before you know it. And you will be the same person that will say, I have such a difficult time finding time to memorize God's Word. I'm trying to get in 15 minutes in Scripture and prayer. Now, I'm, I don't want to be legalistic, and, and I apologize if that's the way it sounds, but, but we need to look at our lives honestly. If we are truly engaged in a war for men's and women's souls, what are we not willing to give up for that? What, if, what are we not willing to give up to please Him who has enlisted us? So take a look, brethren, sisters. It can be, it can be blogs that absorb time and, and commenting and, and all sorts of different themes. But look at where you are in your time devoted to preparing for the battle in the Word of God and prayer in preparing your family for battle compared with what amount of time is being eaten away by these vicious termites in social media and electronic devices. I hope, I hope you will do that because you may, you may be shocked 
to see the comparison of the time and the comparison of the time. And, and again, it's, I'm not saying that this uh, is a legalistic thing and a formula. But I, I can say honestly, look and examine and see where your life is being spent. And then the last part of this picture would be take that evaluation of your life and your schedule and lay that on the altar before God and ask Him, what do you want me to do with this? Will it please Him who enlisted you? Does it prepare you for this battle for eternity? But there is more to effective warfare than motivation and support. Armament is essential. What are our defenses and strengths to enable us to survive and thrive in warfare? What are the components for good warfare? Well, the necessary armaments are described here. Biblical faith and conduct are essential partners in spiritual warfare. Verse 19 says, having faith and a good conscience. We know this is important. Paul mentions it three times. The inseparable link of faith and a good conscience. It's mentioned here in verse 19. It's mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 verse 9. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. And in 1 Timothy 1 5 earlier we read, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Timothy is to hold fast or to keep faith. That faith is the gospel. It is his anchor, his weapon, and his message. For by grace you are saved through faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ is everything. And it is the only thing that is needed for eternal life. Eternal life as Jesus prays in John 17. He says eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How will you hold fast to that faith? You must invest yourself in it. You must hold fast to it by time, by concentration, by meditation. All the things that we're commanded to do here in Scripture so that we will be powerful men and women for Christ. So that we will be effective warriors. We don't want to just survive until He comes. We want to thrive. We want to gain as much of that enemy's territory back to the King. And then it says, Timothy must hold fast to a good conscience. The other part of that too, that pair. A good conscience is the fruit of a consistent life. It is living without hypocrisy. And ouch, that hurts. Such a man's talk matches his walk. This is the highest priority to Paul. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Acts 24, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. A contemporary pastor wrote, Doctrinal purity must be accompanied by purity of life. There is an inseparable link between truth and morality, between right belief and right behavior. But as we know all too well today, and as Paul and Timothy experienced 2,000 years ago, that link between talk and walk is very often broken. Such a break will eventually devastate the hypocrite and those around him or her. And many of you, I'm sure, could say amen. I could say it many times. Where the hypocrisy of my life betrayed a shallow faith. Second part of 19, verse 19 says, Which some have rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. These are the results of rejecting the armament. Hypocrisy sabotages faith. Rejected here is the word apotheo, and it means to thrust away, to push off, to reject. The false teachers had no interest at all in living what they preached. It's like a, a rudder on a ship that has been broken off. They pushed away. They pushed away obedient, godly living, and they destroyed a good conscience. You see, with no rudder of godly living to guide their life's ship, they eventually veered into the rocks 
of a shipwrecked faith. And Timothy is written, or Paul writes to Timothy about this straying away, this veering away. Three times in 1 Timothy, he says in verse 6, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. In chapter 6, verse 10, have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And in verse 21 of chapter 6, by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. And this is a much bigger issue than just personally. The faith mentioned here is not, and, and look at this, is not simply their own faith in Christ that is shipwrecked. Although some translations read a shipwreck of their faith, it is literally translated a shipwreck of the faith. When a person's personal life betrays the faith they profess, the effect is like a monsoon sweeping over coastal villages and homes and destroying countless lives in its wake. In only the last few years, men such as Ravi Zacharias, Josh Harris, Todd Driscoll, Doug Phillips, to name a few, whose personal lives of hypocrisy were exposed, and they have done untold damage to the lives of countless others who trusted that these men linked faith with a good conscience. They did not. And faith was shipwrecked for many. Scotsman John Willison advises servants of Christ. He says, If we would advance the church's credit and avert her reproach, let us all be careful to preach to our people by our lives as well as by our lips, to conform our doctrine in the pulpit by our conversation out of it. Let us mind that a loose, that a loose way of living will soon demolish all that is built by the most lively way of preaching. For our people have eyes to see how we walk, as well as ears to hear what we say. The book of Hebrews, the writer there says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. At some point, hypocrisy... This broken link between faith and a good conscience leads to defaming the very God men profess to know and teach. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, it says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, which some have strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor things which they affirm. Blasphemy replaces the blessing of God. When a man becomes a hypocrite, the blessing is gone and blasphemy takes its place. Two such tragic characters Paul now mentions by name in this last verse. Their names are not cited to humiliate these two men who have defected from the faith. Rather, to warn Timothy. Timothy, you know these men. See what has happened. Walk in a manner consistent with faith and living. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourselves and those who hear you. Hendrickson adds this. He warns, The reason it is so important that Timothy maintain his own faith and good conscience is that Paul's opponents have already chosen to abandon theirs and consequently have shipwrecked the Christian faith by bringing it into reproach. This adds notes of urgency and seriousness. The destructiveness of the opponent's teaching has already had devastating results. Timothy must quickly command them to stop. Citing these names also serves to warn the church. See what happened, church. Church men and women, be faithful in your own living and be careful who you listen to. Walk as you talk. And then lastly, it's also restorative. restorative. All is not lost. This serves as a prayer list. It serves as a prayer list for these men that God would someday grant them repentance and restore them to the church. Pray for Hymenaeus and for Alexander. These men are, are put out of the church. They are put into the hand of Satan. Satan. 
These are likely the two most prominent and radical of teachers mentioned in chapter 1, verses 4 and 6 and 7. They give heed to fables. They speak endlessly of genealogies. They cause disputes rather than godly edification. They've turned aside to worthless idle talk. But yet they want to be teachers. And they don't know anything about what they talk about nor what they affirm from others. Now the identity of Alexander here is vague. However, Hymenaeus will show up in the next chapter. The destructive impact of his life is confirmed in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy 17 and 18. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and this time Philetus are of this sort. They have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past and listen to what happens. And they overthrow the faith of some. That is what such heresy and hypocrisy will do. Now Paul's strategy for the church for these two men is clear. And this is very sobering. In verse 20, it says, Whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. See the soberness of this battle? This is serious. This could be me. This could be you. If we do not heed the warnings Paul gives us. This means here that Paul removed these men from the fellowship and protection of the church. No longer will they receive the benefit of the love and care of the body of Christ. God's grace shared through His body will no longer be a comfort or a safety to them. By putting these men out of the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander are put into the hand of Satan. But this is not simply to punish these offenders. Being delivered to Satan or put out of the church was for at least three purposes. And these are similar to what I shared about naming the two men. The first is, this is a rebuke against Hymenaeus and Alexander. You are wrong, we are rebuking you. Secondly, it protects the church from further infection and destruction from their false teaching. And thirdly, Lord willing, it will cause these offenders to learn. Now, we have experienced this on very few occasions in our own assembly, but we have seen the necessity of this, where you have an individual or perhaps a couple that will not back away from sin and heed the counsel and the correction that has been given by the leadership. They just will not. And so we must rebuke that. And when there will be no repentance, they must be removed from the church. And that's when the second part of this comes. In some of these cases, very clearly, folks have been removed so that they do not continue to teach false doctrine. And so that they do not infect some of your families. But the third part of this is so vitally important also. The hope is that this will bring those people to a realization of their sin and they will turn and repent and come back into the fellowship. It says in that last part that they will learn not to blaspheme. Now learn is kind of a sterile word for us a lot of times. We learn by reading uh, magazines, by reading billboards, we learn by listening to things. That's not what this is at all. Learn here is pahijuo. It means to train through physical punishment. The word often used in the Bible is chastised. Here it is learned. Listen to several ways it is used in the New Testament. Pilate says in Luke chapter 23 verse 16, I will therefore chastise him. I will teach him through physical punishment. And release him. Then a few verses later. Then he said to them the third time. Why what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore teach him a lesson. I will chastise him. And let him go. But the real treasure chest of this word. Is found in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. This word learn. Is the very word used here for chasing. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, 
nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 6, meditate on that for a little bit. Whom he loves, he chastens. That's painful. And we'll see that in just a minute. He, he chastens who? Not those he wants to get even with. He chastens those he loves dearly. And it goes on to say something even more radical. He scourges you. We know what the scourge is from the picture of Christ as he was being beaten and whipped to the point that the skin was raked off his back by this wicked scourge. It can be very painful to learn what we need to learn from God. But he loves us and he's preparing us for eternity. He is preparing us for battle. Let me go on here. Verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For indeed, for a few days they chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. That is what Paul is praying and hoping for Hymenaeus and Alexander. That they will learn not to blaspheme God. Learn through harsh, difficult experiences. But Revelation 3, verse 19, uses this word beautifully. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. This is Christ Jesus glorified. Therefore be zealous and repent. Now on a very positive note as we finish this, Paul gives an actual account of a man successfully restored to God's people in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And it appears that this man had undergone church discipline. It says here in Paul writing, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. He is to be brought back into the fellowship. It appears that God has done his work in this man's life. Now I would say experience in our assembly and the assemblies that I know, uh, that's a rarity where you see people turn in humility and return. But it does happen and that is our desire. But remember, that's not the only purpose. It is to protect the body as well and it is to rebuke sin. But we hope it will have a restorative effect. So that is the severity of putting away the armament of faith and a good conscience. I want to finish with a few things about war war and waging war. William Walsham Howe wrote this hymn and it contains these words. Oh, may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old and win with them the victor's crown of gold. The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise, the blessed. And Paul writes what I think is a victor's song in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. This is a a war-worn man. He's been faithful. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. Most likely he is awaiting his certain execution. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, recognize warfare. Train for warfare. 
Deny yourself. Invest yourself in the things of God. And then engage. Engage in the warfare. When you have opportunities like several shared this morning, don't pull back. Thrust yourself in to look at these opportunities as God-given warfares. 2 Timothy 2.15 reminds us that we need to read and meditate on the Word of God for spiritual understanding of the war. Be diligent, it says, to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. You must be diligent. You must strive. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be or may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is not simply instruction. This is not simply... Well, it is the word inspired, but the word inspired means God breathed. This came from God. It is His word to us. This is what we have to wage war with. Turn with me in closing to Ephesians chapter 6. I realize this is a very cursory, uh, brief look at spiritual warfare. And there's many, many other aspects to it. But I pray that it will whet your appetite to seek your God and your King, to serve Him in battle. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Get that? Why? So that you can stand against the wiles of the devil. There's a devil out there and he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy the glory of God in your life. And he is wily. He is very cunning. You need this armor. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Oh, would it be nice if we did? Look at what we wrestle against. Principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Is anybody a match for that? No, not in the least. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Do all to stand. Stand therefore, Stand, therefore, when you meet with these people, when you're on the front line at your job, when you're confronted by uh, somebody at a, at a store or an extended family member. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to, you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. That is a wartime picture. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, brother, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I understand that many of these thoughts were probably scattered, but I pray that it was scattered among your word and that you would use your word to pierce into the hearts and minds of myself and my brothers and sisters here. Father, that we would be warriors, soldiers, faithful men and women, obscure, unknown, except on the battlefield for Christ, where you watch our every moment, our every movement, and you are at our side. Lord, use us. Use us, please, Father. Glorify your name through us. And and as I ask that, I I know I'm ill-prepared. I know I'm weak. I'm shoddy in so many ways. Lord, make me and my brothers and sisters to be 
fully armored, deep in your word, prepared, that we would be on watch day and night, where we would pray always with all prayer and supplication. Lord, use us to bring glory to your name. In your name we pray, amen.